Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. If you live, breathe, and sleep markets, uh, think about it even as you drift off to sleep. This is the right show for you. Welcome to Money and Me, where we speak with real investors and people who help us decipher what is going on with the markets on the day itself. So today we talk about Hurricane Ida's impact on the energy sector, uh, possible stocks to watch in that regard. If consumer U.S. consumer sentiment is low, we ask, is now the time to look at retail names over in the U.S.? And then Zoom. Earnings were up. Why did it fall in terms of share prices? Been gyrating quite a bit. And have you heard of that 12-year-old in the UK who made $400,000 because he created NFTs uh, that grew out of his love for the video game Minecraft? Do you? Uh, what do you think is fueling the NFT craze and is it likely to continue? Is it hotting back up again? Is it going mainstream? I guess is the question. Which we'll put today to Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Let's take a look at what we know about Hurricane Ida so far. There have been floods, there have been outages. Um, Oil and gas futures have been gyrating somewhat after Ida disrupted production. And some say what Hurricane Ida is doing is putting America's energy security to the test, really. What do you think in terms of what you're seeing about Hurricane Ida? How could it impact the energy sector? I mean, any loss of life, you know, is extremely difficult. And just looking at some pictures and videos from the area, it does seem to have brought about quite a lot of destruction in its path. That being said, though, I would say before going into headlines of, you know, like the U.S. energy independence, mm-hmm. it's it's a lot, lot less severe than Katrina was, uh, I think, like 10 or 15 years ago. And like many multiple folds, right? The, based on various analyst reports, insurance damage uh, for this hurricane is coming in probably to the double-digit billion-dollar mark, closer to $10 billion. To give some idea, Katrina was close to $60 billion. And I think the markets are reacting accordingly. Oil prices uh, didn't move that much, primarily because Ida went a little bit more east towards Louisiana. And what's The problem with that is more of the refineries are situated over there. So in terms of the effect in the energy market, what's actually being seen is the crack spread or basically the difference between the price of crude oil, which has not moved that much, Mm -hmm. and the petroleum products produced from it, like gasoline and home heating oil. The latter has increased a little bit because on the back of the refinery shutting down. So That's something to closely watch out for because along with the hurricane, which brings about the initial damage, the problem always, as you were mentioning, is like the flooding and everything else afterwards, which leads to, you know, whether power can be put back on for these refineries. So the longer these refineries stay shut, that spread will keep widening. And that's something to watch out for. All right. So we have to still wait in terms of assessing the full damage, full scope of the damage, so to speak, even though we know Ida has greatly disrupted uh, Gulf Coast oil and gas and petrochemical operations, uh, Gulf of Mexico as well. But the full big picture is going to take some time to assess then. That's right. It really depends on how quickly I would say energy can be provided, power can be provided back to the refineries, Mm -hmm. because this is not disrupted as much of the actual oil production facilities as it has on the refinery side. 
So that's something to watch out for. One thing that in a weird turn of events that cracks that I was highlighting might mm. not blow out of proportion is because travel is down in the U.S. Uh, school mm. month is nearly ending, like the school holidays, that is. Uh, that leads to a dip in travel. And then the TSA just came up with numbers yesterday where, uh, you know, the number of visitors or number of uh, unique visitors in airports is now back down to like May uh, numbers. And that's on the back of potentially like the Delta COVID uh, variant also. So a combination of all of those factors will lead to less travel, uh, less gasoline, less heating oil potentially being used. And hence, you know, that spread might not widen as much as could potentially have happened because of these refineries shutting down. Okay, so is it about the timing of the oil industry's recovery and how that could impact prices? Uh, you know, depending, does offshore oil production make a quicker return? Does refining capacity make a bigger return? And if it's offshore oil production, could we then start to see a buildup of crude oil inventories, which could in turn weigh on prices? Uh, right. Like, I, I think the combination of demand for this potentially sagging a little bit on the back of the Delta variant uh, spike up across especially the Midwestern belt of the mm. U.S., coupled with, you know, this it's obviously been a hugely destructive hurricane, but this is not the first time uh, Texas or Louisiana has gone through this, right? So they have proper procedures and stuff in place. Given that the extent of damage right now is not as heavy and it's already been ground downgraded to like a type four, one yes. would imagine that over the next couple of weeks, we'll start seeing a ramp up back in oil production, especially with that increase in supply and a potentially slight dampening in demand, we could see some short term weakness in oil prices. All right. And let's not forget, of course, the human costs still over one million homes and businesses without power, mostly in Louisiana. And, um, and and a death toll as well, sadly, five deaths. All right, let's move on to consumer sentiment in the U.S., which has dipped. And when it is low, people always ask, is it a good time to buy? If uh, retail stocks are affected, if if we look at stocks that are sensitive to retail uh, consumers' sentiment, so to speak. So, what do you think, Aaron? If is you, we know U.S. consumer sentiment is low. So is it now time to look at retail names over in the U.S.? I, I would say so. To be honest, I mean, you know, the past couple of uh, like this week, couple of weeks uh, with this whole Delta variant coming, you know, picking up steam again. While Asia has been really battered by it, the U.S. not so much just yet. Right. So on the back of that, it was natural to see consumer confidence uh, dip a bit. That being said, though, this is on the back of, you know, the last four or five months of extremely high prints. So just because this number is like kind of dipped from the peak or, or the, sh- the short term peak and gone back to like what it was in February uh, to a, you know, sub 100, give or take, uh, it's not the end of the world. Right. Bottom line is the underlying economy is still extremely strong, excluding, sadly, that central belt where sadly vaccination rates are just extremely low and hence cases as well as death rates are high, but talking to friends and family on either coast, right, east, west, or even like the new upcoming like southeast region like Georgia and Florida, everything seems to be booming. Like shops are open, Mm. clubs are open, people are going, restaurants are out there, people are traveling over the last like three, four months, right? So a lot of like job discussions are going on, a lot of openings are there, coupled with 
obviously the Fed's zero interest rate policy still, right? And even after Jackson Hole and stuff, there's a lot more discussions about just the beginning of tapering of the bond purchases. No one's even gotten into the interest rate segment just yet. So I think all of those factors are leading to an extremely strong economy. And just given this avalanche of free capital that's been given over the past like 10, 12 years, ever since basically global financial crisis, one would imagine that inflation will slowly start picking up steam. And it already has based on the last couple of months numbers. So the best place to park capital at that point is consumer brand names that have, you know, like a really good moat in the industry. What I mean by that is Coca-Cola, right? If Mm. they increase their price per can by two cents, or as, you know, a savvy consumer would have noticed, the size of their cans have been continuously shrinking, which leads to the exact same thing, right? Is that why? I thought I was just getting thirstier. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) No, it's like every single ML they can shave off each can leads to a massive increase in profitability for the business. So they're trying to like have two levers, right? Increase the prices to some extent, while at the same time reducing the amount of quantity per can. And it's done a phenomenal job to the profitability, top line, bottom line of uh, Coca-Cola. So it's companies like those, uh, Coca-Cola, Kellogg, Mars Incorporated, uh, you know, Kraft Heinz could be an interesting purchase also. I think all of those brand names that are etched in the minds of consumers Mm. who will definitely shell out a certain amount of money for it, I think those are the places to be. A little bit to be cautious more about the higher end segment, the larger uh, capital spending uh, tickets like, say, a car or something else, that's where we can see a potential dip because, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to be a little bit concerned about that. But will they be willing to spend a dollar or two dollars on chewing gum or ketchup? I think uh, absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. Just this morning, we were talking about Campbell's Soup already planning more price increases, uh, they say, to counter inflation. Now, I'm going to throw an argument here that I think is quite interesting. Um, some say that when consumer sentiment is weak, it's actually a contrarian buy signal for the consumer stock group because by the time the decline in confidence hits, it's more likely that stocks uh, have already discounted it and that perhaps part of the reason why we've seen uh, consumer discretionary ETFs like the SPDR ETF, consumer discretionary select selector, those remaining stagnant since April despite what is supposed to be a huge economic comeback in the US. So do you think we consumer sentiment actually a contrarian buy signal? Uh I, I would agree to that to some extent, but mm. it really depends on whether we're talking about like what's your time horizon for investment, right? Sure. Is this going to be like a short, like one month or two month punt? Mm-hmm. Or is this going to be like a much more longer term, like investment decision? And the way I at least approach this is from a longer term perspective, yep. where are the tailwinds versus the headwinds for the sector and making a call over there? Because just like we saw, you know, Feb, the numbers that came out were not that attractive. And then last in May, June, July, numbers spiked up all the way. This is consumer confidence numbers Mm -hmm. I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, last month again, it dipped again. So if you're trying to like time the market over that shorter term basis, yes, there is some statistical proof, uh, at least that I've read, like a couple of studies that shows that this contrarian nature of investing into this space could yield results. But it's something to be a little bit careful about, right? It, it all stems into what is the reason behind the drop? 
Because if, for example, this Delta variant picks up even more steam or there's some other variant now out of Colombia, apparently, that no vaccination uh, works on, who knows what can happen over there? And this number just keeps dropping. The question really is, what is the bottom of the consumer confidence number Mm. at which point it makes sense to be truly contrarian, right? Just because one drop from the last three or four months elevated numbers doesn't make it necessarily the perfect time to get into this sector if you have a one or two month horizon. Good point. It's a little bit different from what I was thinking about. Absolutely, absolutely. We know with you, we're looking at the long-term view, responsible <laughs> investing. We know that. Let's, speaking of drops, Zoom shares tanked more than 16% Tuesday following very disappointing earnings report. Is selling Zoom now quite similar to letting go of Apple during the iPod days? What do you think? <laughs> Well, firstly, regarding comparison of one company to the other, right? And being in the fintech startup space myself, hmm. it's a lot about storytelling, right? To convince Absolutely. investors to pay up. And the problem with that is, you know, a, a lot of startups love to compare themselves to say, oh, you know, a- Amazon was loss making for years and now look, it's a trillion dollar company. Facebook didn't spend a cent on marketing nor had any revenue. We don't need to either. The problem is that, you know, those unique business cases coupled with luck as well as being at the right place at the right time worked for that specific company, right? Like Amazon Web Services, AWS for Amazon has been the growth generator, not selling books online. So they pivoted their business model to a very large extent or enhanced their business model by increasing another vertical. Facebook captive college student base while claiming back then that they would never get into advertising. And then what do you know? You know, it's become like the second largest advertising company in the world, basically, after Mm -hmm. Google. So basically my point is, you know, what works for someone doesn't necessarily mean it can work for others just going by that same story. So coming to Zoom, We all know what happened, what's happened to Apple now, right? The world's most profitable company, multi-trillion dollar business. It all started from the uh, iPod. And who knew? If you remember, you can see pictures of this thing. It was this big clunky thing that no one would probably use right now, right? But Absolutely. What did, they do? what did they do really well? They kept enhancing their product base, always being extremely concerned about what the consumer wants and being at the cutting edge of that. So they became the fashion statement in the technology world and they've been able to maintain that for the past like 20 plus years, which is phenomenal, right? Like barely anyone has managed to pull that off in the tech space. Zoom is a very interesting phenomenon. 2020, their revenues were $600 million. 2021, their revenues picked up over four times to $2.6 billion. We are over halfway through in 2021 right now. The trailing 12-month revenue for this business is $3.6 billion. So we can see the marked increase in revenue, right, from 0.6 to 2.6, and then it's already growth rates of close to 50% on a trailing 12-month basis. Does that $3.6 billion revenue map up to a market cap of just shy under $90 billion post the drop on Tuesday and the 3 or 4% increase on Wednesday. In my mind, it doesn't. And this is a person who loves Zoom. I use it all the time for my meetings because it is the best quality product out there. Mm. But the issue is for, you know, 
one or 10 of me, like in the startup space, your MNC buyers, right? The ones that really pay up top dollar. I mean, we've gone for like one of the cheapest subscription plans. What, what Zoom does want is your multi-million dollar tickets with the Coca-Colas or the Hewlett Packards of the world, like these large businesses. And those guys, and that's where a huge amount of competition kicks in with the likes of Cisco, Microsoft, and Google, who have basically, you know, captured that office market segment by providing a whole host of other services so it becomes a one-stop shop. So coming to Zoom, and apologies for a very long-winded answer, I guess. No, it's really great. Thank you. Yeah, please go on. The issue is, with a fantastic one-product business, you know, you can get to a certain uh, market cap or revenue, and that's great, right? They've checkboxed that till till kingdom come Mm. on the back of the COVID pandemic. If there was no COVID, would this $90 billion be over here or would it be like an $8 or $10 billion company or a $5 billion company and people saying, you know what, I love this product, I love the company, very smart people, would love to see what happens next. That's how they should be potentially valued and that's kind of what Apple was being valued at back in the day. No one knew that the likes of the iPhone, the iMac, all of these other ancillary services, iWatch, iPods, uh, will all kick in. So for Zoom, I think maybe the market stepped ahead of itself a little bit, but that's just a sign of you know things in the tech market right now, right? Where a lot of technology companies are being, especially on the SaaS side of things, are being overvalued. I think proof in the pudding is going to be when Zoom comes up with an enterprise suite, which I'm sure, you know, there are many smart people, I'm sure they'll be able to pull off. Yeah. Not well, not sure, but potentially they'll be able to pull off, mm-hmm. and that can truly then justify the market cap and the valuation of the business. So, what's next for it that could lead us to believe that it does have tremendous growth potential for its future? All right, speaking of uh, what's next, let's talk about the NFT market because. <laughs> um, I yesterday, a friend, I didn't realize that I had a friend who has 65 sports cars in Singapore. Wow. <laughs> yeah, 65 sports cars. Uh, first thing that came to mind was, are you Jay Leno? Uh, he isn't. And he said uh, he's NFTing one of his cars and turning it into, um, you know, so- something to do with the market. And so that made me think, j- j- what is happening in this NFT market? There's a 12-year-old in the UK. He made $400,000 from his whales uh, because he loves Minecraft. I don't know what you do with these NFT whales. I mean, can you enter it into Minecraft and play with them? Or I don't know what you do. Anyway, good for Benjamin Ahmed, who is 12 years old in the UK. It cost him $300 to mine his weird whales that he coded himself um, mainly for the gas fees if you want to mine uh, you know if you want to cre- what, is, what is what mint your own NFT you've got to pay these gas fees so what do you think is going on when you see the influx of 14 year olds 10 year olds over the weekend were telling me they're begging moms for uh, you know tools in order to create their own NFTs is this about conspicuous consumerism really fueling the NFT market or is this about um, somehow the system pivoting towards trying to get as much mainstream adoption as possible because liquidity is important for these digital currencies to have life? You know, it's extremely, firstly, I just have to say it's extremely strange where a grey rock can be sold for $30,000, some whale can be sold for $50,000. The entire thing, but 
I think their rationale as to why it's happening, I think it's a combination of those two things that you mentioned. A certain number of people have made truckloads of money in the crypto space, and hence this becomes, you know, some kind of an avenue to just deploy that capital. You know, maybe if you're sitting on like, I don't know, 5,000 Ether or 50,000 Ether, thinking, oh, you know what, let me just spend five Ether on some kind of a whale because it sounds really cool. Maybe that's something that what these people are thinking. But conceptually, you know, just taking a step back to the concept of NFT, Mm -hmm. while, you know, on the show, I've been very anti, I would say, like this whole cryptocurrency space. NFT is something that I'm actually quite positive and bullish about because the concept of it is extremely strong. It ensures authenticity. You know, for all art dealers or maybe potentially future NFT uh, investors, there's this really cool documentary on Netflix called Made You Look, which highlights how fake art pieces are just going around in, on, in all these museums and galleries right now because of the lack of provenance or the proof of ownership trail for the eventual buyer to know for, between whose hands has this painting continuously switched over over the past 20, 30, 100 years from the creator of the painting, right? So this concept of provenance, and mm-hmm. that's what NFTs do to perfection, right? Uh, contingent to obviously not someone not being able to hack the blockchain code, but it's, you know, most of these NFTs are on the back of Ether that seems to be quite robust in terms of uh, security right now. So on the back of that, like having these kinds of um, having this on Ether is extremely strong. You're able to track the history of this specific art piece, which is exactly what I believe NFTs should be used for. How it's devolved in a way Uh into this whales and rocks and all of this stuff, it honestly just seems to be a fad. Because unless there's a way to truly extract rent, right, or value from this asset, you know, maybe we're living in a whole metaverse universe in the next 10 years. And hence, if you want to go and see this gray whale in the metaverse uh, museum, you have to pay a certain amount of entry fee. Unless that kind of concept kicks in, I think it will be extremely difficult for these asset prices to stay at these elevated levels. Now, you know, there's a whole comparison about, oh, why do you say that when, you know, the Mona Lisa is still valued at God knows how many hundred millions of dollars and mm. people pay money for that in the museum. The issue with that, also, with, again, just is that this is a digital art piece, right? I can take the exact same copy and I can download that gray whale on my laptop right now for free. So then it just, it's, it's only about are enough people out there being willing to pay to see that original gray whale rather than this digital gray whale on my laptop. And we know that that has been proven true for a Mona Lisa where people will make the trip to Europe to see it as mm-hmm. compared to seeing a fake one on the walls in someone's house in Singapore. But I think that question has not been answered yet in this NFT gray whale or rock space and that i think is a fundamental issue and just to me it just seems bewildering as to why anyone would ever pay any money for that 
But, you know, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> who knows? If you had half a million to blow on, you know, anything you wanted, you might buy yourself a pet rock that you couldn't pet. Um, so justified confusion, I suppose, about this flood of cash and activity in the NFT space. Uh, you make some really interesting points about, you know, if what are we going, why is this authenticity aspect so important? You know, and some say this is about the financialization of pop culture. Some say this is about how the metaverse is is evolving and others say it's a postmodern world that we're moving into. And so um, with the blockchain and the ability for things to be duplicated, this authenticity key is, is all the more or, important. Yeah. Or, oh, hidden or? Option, or hidden option <laughs> B, it's just a crazy bubble. Why were people willing to spend $5,000 a price inflation price adjusted on a tulip that you knew was going to die in two months. I don't know, Michelle, but things like this happen in the financial market. And it's always interesting to see sitting from the sidelines and, <laughs> you know, admiring and seeing how these things go. Like, it why is, did Cats.com yeah. sell for millions of dollars back in 1998? These things happen. People get caught up in the euphoria. People make a lot of money, but sadly, a lot of people get burnt spectacularly. So, you know, always just good to be cautious. Or it could be about money laundering, Arun. You know what? I was going to say, it's actually highly possible where if you've accumulated a certain amount of crypto through this space, mm-hmm. getting into the art world, and, and it, to be honest with you, this is not a new NFT phenomenon, right? Like nope. a, a lot of statistics about how half the uh, artwork, like the physical artwork, is sadly on the back of like black money. It could easily be, and we know you know, the likes of all these cryptocurrencies, I would say the percentage is a lot higher in terms of nefarious activities. So it could easily be a way to just try and make it as clean as possible. You tell people that you just, you know, made $3 million by selling a gray whale, then people don't ask too many questions. So maybe it's on the back of that. I completely agree. <laughs> well, thanks for pointing us in the direction of that Netflix documentary. It sounds fascinating. That made you look, huh? That's what it's, it's called. really, really interesting. Yes, Absolutely indeed. fabulous. And I think if this NFT craze is leading 14-year-olds to want to learn to code, then hey, good thing. <laughs> I, I was reading just yesterday uh, or today, there was mm. this uh, cup, this, uh, these two children, I think 14 and 8 or something, out of Texas that were mining like insane amounts of Bitcoin, yes. Ether, and some other cryptocurrency. And the guy is like... I want to go to UPenn in uh, five years' time, which is phenomenal, right? Like, so from that aspect, rather than playing around in, like, playing football, which might be also useful to some extent, in the garage, these people were mining uh, cryptocurrency <laughs> and they set it all up themselves. Oh my gosh. It's just amazing. Yeah, I read that, 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 that as well, that young um, brother, sister, right? Yeah, Parents yeah, must be so indeed. proud. Miners. Yep. <laughs> Well, 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 the father is an ex-investment banker who's taken a big loan to fund those 3,000 traffic cards. So, but right now, I guess it's paying dividends, right? So it's all good. <laughs> yeah, I know. They started from, you know, 30 bucks and all of a sudden, yeah, they're yeah. making like 20,000 a month. <laughs> that's right. Oh, we, we, in fact, we're going to be talking about digital mining. There's apparently a whole new model of crypto mining ownership and some companies are... are uh, renting out these mining rigs or actually giving access to companies to be able uh, to buy or lease or have fractional time-based ownership of these mining machines. So stay tuned for that. We've got that coming up. In the meantime, Arun, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure as always. Thank you for having me, Michelle. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow.
Before acting on the information on MoneyFM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at MoneyFM893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.